Hello and good morning. Welcome to those who are uh, watching this on Zoom. It's great to have you with us. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you come in on somebody watching a film on telly and it's about half an hour in and you can't stop asking them questions about what's going on because you're trying to work it out and catch up with them but they're very annoyed at every question that you ask. Anyone ever been in that situation? It happens frequently with myself and my wife. She'll be starting a program and I'm not so focused on television, so I come in late in my inquisitive mind thinking, who's that guy? What's happening? What's the story? But of course it ruins it for the people who are already well into the story. And If you're a visitor this morning, you're coming into a story. It's like halfway through a movie. We're looking at the book of Acts, one of the big books of the New Testament, and we're right in the middle of the story, and you don't have a fair chance to know what's going on because you're just visiting. So can I just give you a little bit of a heads up just to encourage you so you don't have to keep asking me questions while I'm speaking. The central person to much of this story is a guy called Paul, one of Jesus' top followers, who was told by Jesus, you've got to travel far and wide to get this message out. So he left his native country and he traveled all the way through what we call Turkey and then all the way through what we call Greece and later on he went all the way to what we call Italy and he planted churches and preached. And this is the story of him in one of his most dramatic uh, encounters with a city that he came to and this city is called Ephesus. He was there for more than two years and Matt Lawrence told the story beautifully last week about what happened because in that two-year period, he brought about faith in literally, without exaggeration, thousands of people. He used to lecture in a school hall once a day, probably every day during the weekdays and people used to drop in on him and he used to pray for the sick and miracles happened. It was a dramatic story. Now, this city of Ephesus had about maybe a quarter of a million people living in it, one of the big cities of the ancient world. And we're still in the city for something extraordinary that happened after Paul had been there for two years. Quite extraordinary what happened. Now, I've had the privilege of going to this place. Now it's an archaeological ruin in, on the Turkish coast. And I was at a conference there about 10 years ago, and I was able to take a day out with some friends and go down to this incredible city. It's astonishing. You might find all these stones really boring, but I find them really interesting, especially if there's a lot of them. And in Ephesus, it goes on and on and on, and so many things have been preserved. And it's right by the sea. So many people would approach this city from the port, and there's a short walk and a little uh, promenade walk all the way to the city. And when they get to the city, there's a little bit of a hillside. There are two very prominent things that everybody saw when they came to Ephesus. And I could see them when I went there. One was a complete ruin, and the other one is very well preserved. There's two things that you could see which are really important for us today. The first one was on the hill just on the edge of the city was the most enormous building, a temple. Here comes a reconstruction on the screen. It completely dominated the scene. One of the biggest temples ever built in 
the ancient world. Far bigger than the one in Athens that many of you will be familiar with. Far bigger. And this was a temple to a goddess, a regional goddess of that area, who everybody knew about and virtually everybody uh, reverenced and worshipped and her name was Artemis. And she was called Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city owned her. It was their deity, their God. And as Matt said last week, people would come from miles around on pilgrimage, especially in the spring in March and April, but all the way through the year, every day, there were people coming. Let's keep it up on the screen, please. There were people coming to this um, temple here. And they worshipped this goddess who was the goddess of fertility, both human fertility and the fertility of the land. And thousands of people came. So keep that building in mind because a lot is about that building in our story. Now the second thing you see when you come in from the sea, which you can still see today, you're literally walking along this promenade and right in front of you on the hillside appears what comes up on the screen right now. An amphitheater. Look how well preserved it is. If you go to the very top of the seating there, and your friend is at the very bottom, I did this with a friend, and the friend speaks clearly, you can hear him or her right at the top. The acoustics are so good that everybody can hear what's going on. And about 25,000 people can get into this amphitheater, one of the biggest in the ancient Roman world. I can't say the seating was that comfortable. But you could crowd in. Okay, so just keep those two things in mind. These are places that are very important in our story. Paul's been here for two years. Thousands of people have become believers. And let me tell you one other thing. We, we won't need that slide anymore. Let me just tell you one other thing that had happened just before the story. Something really strange had happened in the city. Paul had said that you shouldn't be involved in occult practices and the things that we might call like Ouija boards and horoscopes and all that kind of stuff. He said, no, that's a different path. That's not the right path. And a lot of people had all sorts of paraphernalia and scrolls related to that. And so many people decided they weren't going to follow this anymore that somebody decided to have a bonfire. And somewhere in the city, they had a bonfire which would be vastly bigger than any bonfire night bonfire you've ever experienced. As they burnt all this stuff and they said, no, we're following Jesus. We're not going to go into all this superstitious stuff anymore. Okay, so I hope I'm painting the scene. If you live in Ephesus, you knew this guy Paul was around. He'd made a fantastic impact. But in our story today, all his success takes a very different turn. Something dangerous happens. There's a kickback. It's not all one-way traffic. Acts 19, verses 23 to 27. About that time, there arose a disturbance about the way, that means the Christian path. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, 
brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here now, this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Wherever tourists gather, traders gather. Have you ever noticed that? And they're selling you things that you need. And here were these religious pilgrims in their tens of thousands, and the silversmiths created little replicas of Artemis' temple. We've even found, the archaeologists have even found an imprint of one of them made out of silver, and my goodness me, it was good trade because people came past in their thousands and they bought them. And they probably made little, little uh, figurines of Artemis herself and they sold them in their thousands. But trade was going down because this guy was in town. Less people. Numbers, you know, the guy clicking the numbers coming up to the temple noticed the number's going down. The tradesman said it's not so busy now. And the trade union leader, Art, uh, Demetrius, thought, right, we've got to do something about it. This guy, Paul, is disrupting our economy. He's disrupting our religion. He's disrupting our society. He's disrupting our culture. He's turning the city upside down. Something's got to be done about it. And, of course, all the tradesmen said, Absolutely, we're glad somebody spoke up for us. Verse 26, 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized... Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater, the amphitheater, together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Wow. Well, there's 25,000 seats, and they were filling up fast. Because the silversmiths went into the marketplaces, and they said, look, we've got to do something about this Jewish guy who's come in with this subversive message. Everything's being turned upside down. He said, yeah, we think so too. And there was a big marketplace just by this amphitheater, just outside. You can see all the market stalls today. There's still the remnants of them, and thousands of people would have gathered there. And they said, come on, guys, we're having a demonstration. We're going into the amphitheater. And so hundreds and thousands of people gathered into this amphitheater. And poor old Paul's companions just got nabbed because they couldn't find Paul. They couldn't find him. They said, where's, where's his friends? Take him in there. Take them. They took them in. 
And Paul, being the sort of strong person he was, says, I want to go and speak to them. I'll stand at the bottom. I can speak to 25,000 people, no problem. But the people were genuinely afraid he'd be crushed to death or killed or hit by a missile. It was a really volatile situation. No, Paul. You can't go this time. Let's see what happens. And the situation threatened to get completely out of hand. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the Jewish people there wanted to say, we don't agree with Paul either. He's subverted our religion. He's subverting your society. But they couldn't even get a hearing. You can't be heard in the amphitheater unless people agree to be quiet. No microphones. You have to have a quiet audience. And the people would not listen to the Jewish guy. And the, uh, Paul wasn't allowed to speak. And so you've got this volatile crowd in here waiting for someone to come. And eventually the senior official in Ephesus heard about it and he thought, right, better get down there and sort this out. He was very worried because if there was a riot, the Romans would send in their soldiers and start arresting people. Romans had their military garrison in town. So the the town clerk, the, the city clerk is thinking, we better calm things down. Because once the Romans intervened with their military, then we're in real trouble. The assembly, sorry, the, the city clerk, verse 35, quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You brought these men here though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, <coughs> the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly as it is. We are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it and after he said this he dismissed the assembly so military intervention was narrowly avoided reading between the lines there would have been a lot of arrests probably a lot of deaths probably a great deal of anguish in the city once the Romans start putting their foot down because they hated any civil unrest They hated it. They wouldn't allow it anywhere. But the clerk, the town clerk, managed to calm it all down. And he dismissed the crowd. So what's going on in Ephesus? Let's just take a step back. The gospel has come very powerfully. And it has challenged the status quo in a number of different ways. 
It's challenged the Jewish people there because they held on to their legalistic religion and they didn't want to believe that Jesus had died, from the, had, had died and risen from the dead. So they were against Paul. So the true gospel often causes a reaction amongst those who want a religious system but don't understand a true relationship with God. So that's one of the things going on in the situation. The second thing is that the occultists and the mystery religion and all the superstition that was in the city was being really challenged by Paul. Because Paul also said, that's not the way. You actually need to turn away from those things. So that caused a stir. And thirdly, economic interests were, were being challenged. Trade was being affected. The economy was being undermined by new priorities from thousands of people. And fourthly, was just straightforward popular prejudice. People don't like something new very often. We've got our religion, we've got Artemis, we've got our great temple. We don't need this new Christian religion. And all these things came together and eventually produced this very dynamic event, this, this potential riot taking place that could have been absolutely disastrous, but it was just stopped at the last minute by the town clerk. But what, what lies behind all that? Demetrius the silversmith, he put his finger on it. He said, very tellingly, and this is the point I want to just land on as we move towards the end. Verse 26, Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Paul taught everywhere, and it applies to us as well as to them, that the human problem is that we put something else in the place of God. And another way he expresses it is idolatry. There's something there that's more important than God, more important than Jesus Christ. And Paul was against all of those things, whether it's legalistic religion, economic self-interest, occultism, any kind of thing that took people away from a complete focus on the saving power of Christ, that was in Paul's eyes idolatry, danger, difficulty, disaster for humanity. And that's what lies behind this story. But we haven't got these temples in Shropshire. What are the idols of modern man? What are the things that actually have the same power to distract people? It's anything more important to us than God. Anything that captures our heart and imagination more than God. And behind all the things that were there in Ephesus are three common themes that we find in any human society. Money, 
Sex. Power. They were worried about money. There was even a bank in the temple of Artemis. They didn't have proper banks in those days, but they had a bank facility up there. Money. The priority of money, money-making, control of money, accumulating money, finding happiness in money. And in the worship of Artemis, there was also a lot of sexual implications. Because when these thousands of people went up there, they didn't just go to worship the goddess, they went there to get hooked up. There were prostitutes there. It was a meet-up place. And this was all allowed, all above board, all part of the culture. And power. Demetrius and his friends were worried about losing power. And so this story, though it seems strange to us, and is a long, long time ago, can be connected to our world. Because you and I can be dominated right in, in our own hearts by driving forces that are doing us harm. Being a workaholic, overambition, looking for status, finding meaning and value in life only through various sexual relationships, the pursuit and the accumulation of money, the pursuit of comfort in the modern world, all these things become really powerful driving forces. They're not so obvious as the things that we see in the text, but they're just as powerful. And if Paul was here today, he'd be saying, we need to break free from some of those things. Because there's a more important reality. The living God, Christ himself. And we're in danger if we put our trust in any of these other things. In a moment, we're going to conclude, and we're going to sing a modern song. I'd like to put up the words on the screen of the first verse. Cornerstone, my hope is built in nothing less. While the musicians gather, we're just going to put the words up because I just want to say one thing about the words of this song. And I'm going to invite you to sing it as a response. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the next lines... I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. I want to pause there. This was written nearly 200 years ago, and the language is a bit obscure to us. But the sweetest frame means putting your trust in yourself, your strength, your health, your youth, your intelligence, your relationships your reputation, your savings, your friends. This writer said, I dare not trust in those things. I dare not trust in them. Because ultimately, they're idols and they crumble. And I've been with many people at the point of death who didn't truly believe and heard the heart-rending cries of people who said, I've wasted my life.
because I didn't put the right person at the center. I dare not trust in the sweetest frame what I value myself. But I wholly trust in Jesus' name. That's what baptism's about. And that's what this story is about. Let's stand and sing together.